You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're glad to be back. Um, I'm in my studio in Norman. Emily's back in her studio in Tahlequah for this week. Um, things have been a little crazy with uh, school schedule. Um, it's back to school, as you all know, my wife's a teacher, and we're in the middle of selling a house and buying a house. So the studio looks a little... Just a little bit of... <laughs> yeah. Stu- Just a little bit of stuff going on in your life. <laughs> yeah, studio looks a little bare. Um, so... Uh, camera angle's a little funny. I just, I couldn't figure out how to do this and I don't know what our video quality is going to look like. I'm recording the video on the old MacBook, so we'll see if it even makes it through. <laughs> Hopefully it will. <laughs> so it's like a 12 year old MacBook. Well, you know, they aren't here to see our beautiful smiling faces, so. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> They're just. I guess. Um... So. <laughs> so anyway, but we are. We're we're doing what we do here, and so hopefully we can get through this with a remotely. It, it feels weird. We just, I feel like we had just gotten used to kind of getting back in the studio and recording live, and then this last couple of weeks it just didn't work out for you to get up here. So anyway, that that aside, we should uh, probably get going. I guess. <laughs> well, you know the the text is way more interesting than us. So um, I should hope so. You know if if you. <laughs> Definitely. Well, if you if you remember last week, we left off with um, Saul chasing after David, and he winds up in Naoth with um, with Samuel. And as he got there, this well, even before he got there, he started prophesying on his way to um, to find David. And when he approaches Samuel, he's overcome with the spirit of the Lord, and he strips down naked in front of Samuel and he lays there and the the story concluded with is Saul among the prophets and mm. i was talking about how this reminded us of Saul's initial anointing sorry guys that's Jackson and his wonderful tags um but you know, ask is Saul among the prophets and we're supposed to take this back to that story previously when Saul was anointed king and it seemed like it could be a positive saying then and now it's it, it's really being presented as a negative question. And so... I don't remember it well, being listed as a positive saying uh, at the beginning. I I guess I, I've slept it, since then. So. <laughs> well, we, we talked, I think we talked about three different ways that could be read. One was a, as a positive. Yes, now he's among the prophets and he's been filled with the Spirit of God, so he can be our leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way was... Um, ridicule because the prophets were seen as madmen and they're always misfits and they they don't really work in society. Right. But then the the third way is who is the father of the prophets? Uh it, you know, basically calling Saul an illegitimate person. Um and so there there was that. So that we have those three different readings, but I think the two negative readings are really impacted by this this later story. And because in this story, I mean Saul is stripped bare. He's humiliated. Sure. And so the fact that, that he is laying out totally exposed as a king of Israel, 
oh my goodness, this this is beyond scandalous. So and, uh, so we can kind of look at this as like a temporary uh God-induced descent into madness. Is there any parallel to this in Nebuchadnezzar? Um, there probably is. I, I didn't go there because we did talk about it some in a previous episode. But um, the, this, the similarities would be the fact that in this moment, both are humiliated and both are being shown that they, they aren't the sovereign ruler of their, of their nation mm-hmm. or the world that God really is the only sovereign uh, sovereign king and um God's going to stop you you don't get to continue in what you're doing if you are not obeying him and so you know Nebuchadnezzar was stopped uh, Saul was stopped and now God just I mean he just lays them out and he he's like we're going to ex- expose your true nature uh in in all of this and that you should be humiliated and we're also reminded, too, that Saul's without excuse because he has known what it is like to have God's spirit overwhelm him. He's had those intimate moments with God. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't somebody who's, you know, ignorant of God, ignorant of his ways. I mean, this this is a man who's been prophesying in his own house before this even started. Now, the the problem is what he's saying isn't suiting what he wants. It's not backing up the things he wants out of life, which is he wants to look good in front of the people and he wants to retain the throne. And God has already said, this isn't going to happen. And so Saul's having to really confront this reality. And I think that's the element that's really driving him, driving him mad. Right. And, and, and this, this episode really, pushes us back to confront the truth that Israel is not going to be ruled by brute strength. It, it's not going to be ruled through people's machinations and, and schemes. It, it's going to be ruled by the word of the prophet or the word of God through the prophet. And so what I have to wonder about this episode is, did Mikal hear about this? What, what did she know about this, this moment? And how does that impact later when David brings the ark into Jerusalem and he's dancing and, you know, he's dancing in, in his underwear, basically. And what what impact did that have on her? Because she, you know, has she already been shamed by her father in, in such a, a way by, you know, with his experience with God where he is laid out naked. And now she thought maybe her husband was supposed to be above that or beyond that and to have it replayed. I think there's a lot of things that that could really impact that moment for her. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. But that was one of the questions that that came up for me. And so in this episode, well, you know, nobody likes to be humiliated the same way more than once. Um, You you like to think you can avoid it. So but the the thing is, despite this experience. Saul doesn't change. He doesn't repent. He, he never asks for forgiveness. In fact, he continues in his, his stubborn ways, very much like Pharaoh, with that hardened heart. He has a goal. He has a mission. God's not going to derail him. And so this is the reason why he's not fit to be king of Israel. The king of Israel has to be responsive to God and his dictates. And remember in the book of Samuel that 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 throwback to Exodus and with Pharaoh, the kings, and slavery, and Saul, who has enslaved all of Israel, 
just like Pharaoh had. Uh, it's very much on display. And so we, we see that the only qualifier, the only true qualifier for a king of Israel is the ability to repent. And so that's foreshadowed in David because when we look back at his family line and we go back to Genesis, we go back to Judah and Tamar, and we've done the episode on that, so I'm not going to go through the whole story. Mm. But the, the, Judah is the first person in the Bible to repent. And that becomes a very significant part of David's um, lineage. Now, we had started to go into this in the last episode, and I'm really glad we didn't go all the way through it because there was something I had actually missed. Uh, and I was listening to a podcast from Dresha, and uh, Rabbi Silva was, uh, or Silver, sorry, one of the two, uh, he was teaching on this, and he pointed out that this story with Saul uh, before Samuel and the story right before it with Michal and David, they're connected. And he just points out the connection as uh, being with the messengers, because both stories really, really focus on the messengers and, and what they're doing. And the thing is, when you get to looking at that, uh, well, when I got to looking at that, it set off a whole string of connections that I had not seen before. So I went back and I read both stories and I, I pulled out the different connections. And so, yes, the messengers definitely play a prominent part in the, in the story. The, each time they're sent out three times, the messengers go out to get and to kill David and they're unsuccessful each time. And they're also connected through prophecy because remember what Michal told David, if you stay here tonight, if you're not gone by tomorrow morning, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. That is a form of prophecy. And so now Saul is prophesying before Samuel. Now, with the, the retellings or when you've got these stories that kind of echo each other, you start with the connections and this is what tells you the stories. Stories are connected. But then you look at the, the distinctions. And when you look at the distinctions, this is where I think it gets really interesting. You know, Saul commands that David be brought before him. Yeah. But Saul is compelled to stand before, before Samuel. Michal conceals. She conceals the teraphim. She hides it. Where Saul is stripped bare, he's revealed in, in, to the, you know, the most elemental level possible. Um, Michal lies when she's brought before Saul. Saul is compelled to tell the truth in front of Samuel. And so ultimately what, what the picture is, we're seeing that David's deliverance can't be brought about through the household of Saul. It has to be by the hand of God. And this, this separation of the two houses is so vital and so important that Saul's legacy is not any part of David's rule other than the fact that David replaces Saul. And that replacement has to be so complete that it can't look like he owes Saul anything, not even a wife. And in many ways, this, this second story is a critique of Michal because she did the right thing in helping David, you know, escape. But she was relying on her own wisdom and her own abilities and her position as Saul's daughter, a princess in the nation of Israel, which this is the kind of thing that Saul does. Mm -hmm. And we're really seeing that she is the daughter of Saul. And she's not operating in faith. And we've got to remember Samuel is all about the shift where we, we, women are moving from that place of deception and, um, you know, these kind of 
ruses and, and all of these, these plots and schemings that they had uh, had to rely on before because we, we opened with Hannah. And Hannah, who says there's a problem and I can go to God and I can ask him for, my, for his help and I can expect deliverance from him and through him, where Mikhail, she, she doesn't do that. And so we see her very much operating in the tradition of her household instead of making that break. And I, I have to wonder if she'd made the break, if she'd stepped out of Saul's shadow, would she have been allowed to be the, the wife of David with all of the, the perks and glory and honor that that position would have commanded? So that's my speculation. I, I, like I said, that's, that's something that I, I didn't, didn't find the, well, what I just taught anywhere in any commentaries, that's just stuff that I, I was noticing as I went through the scriptures. I want to point that out so that, you know, if you start looking for it, I'm your source, yeah. uh, you know, for better or worse. Yeah. Well, and, and if you do find anything on it, let us know or, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at it. Absolutely. And I, I love all the source material that when people send me stuff and they know that, you know, I'm going to be going over a certain aspect of scripture, they send me articles or podcasts or what have you. And I'm off, always finding just really amazing stuff because people care enough to share. So, mm-hmm. but so we're, we're moving into chapter 20. And I actually remember this story being taught a lot in, in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And it, this, this story is about Jonathan and David's friendship. And most of us already know it. Um, David, you know, he's left Naoth and he's on the run, but Jonathan wants him to come back home. And so we're going to talk about all the stuff that's in the story because you think I would get to the point where I realize that there's always going to be great stuff that I didn't study before in scripture. And I... I've got to get past thinking I know the story because every time I break it down, I'm discovering something new. So chapter 20 and verse one, we, we find that David has left Naoth. It, it says that. And he, he asked Jonathan, he says, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin? So he, he really is trying to, uh, trying to figure out why does Saul want him dead? He, he just can't comprehend how he could show such loyalty and service to Saul and still be on this guy's hit list. And you're going to notice there's three questions there. Threes are throughout this entire chapter. We're going to have several sets of threes in, the, in this um, story. So David, you know, in this moment, he seems to be kind of uh, clueless. And, and, you know, we know the reason David's going to take the, the throne from Jonathan, right, from Saul and Jonathan, both too. Both of them, yeah. Both of them, yeah. And I, I think David knows this. I mean, he's not stupid, but he, he doesn't seem to understand why that means they can't be friends. And he, he seems to have this mistaken idea that being good and doing the right thing it has earned him some kind of, of grace and generosity from Saul that he should be treated well because he has been a great guy to Saul. And, you know, obviously we see in scripture where that never plays out. The, the world does not respond to us that way. And, um, you know, one of the things Jesus says is that we're going to be persecuted even when we're doing the right thing, maybe sometimes especially because we're doing the right thing. And so, you know, David, David's not getting it. And so 
he he poses these questions to Jonathan and Jonathan makes a very unusual statement. He says, this is verse two, says, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So few reasons why this is weird. Number one, um, Saul had talked to Jonathan in chapter 19, verse one. It, that verse actually says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So Saul's obviously revealed his, his intent to Jonathan directly. And then we go back to chapter 14 with Saul's rash vow, where Saul makes a, a vow without talking to Jonathan at all. So we know Saul will do things without talking to Jonathan. Mm -hmm. So why in the world is Jonathan saying this? But so let's deal with the first um, verse there before we go any further, because obviously chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. And so this has led a lot of commentators to say that there is a problem with the chronological order that uh, maybe chapter 20 should have been inserted before, or, you know, it's not where it belongs, that the events of chapter 19 and, and 20 are somehow mixed up or skewed. And you, that's a possibility. We, we've run into issues with chronology and Samuel before, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's been one of the debates. But the problem is verse one specifically says David came from Neoth. So either he did or he didn't. And we know that what happened in chapter 19 had to precede David coming from Naoth. So I think there's a little simpler solution to the problem than the text is messed up. Okay. I think, yeah, I think that Saul has not told Jonathan of his most recent desire to kill David. That maybe he had told um, Jonathan about it previously, and now Jonathan thinks everything's okay because David did return to Saul's house in between when these uh, two statements were made. Yeah, well, and you did and, you did have Saul also previously repenting of trying to kill David, basically. Ex exactly, exactly. So you know, there there seems to have been you know peace has been returned to the the house. I also think we're looking at a man who's been raised in an abusive household with a very abusive father. And one of the most difficult things to convince abuse victims, particularly those who are raised in an abusive situation, is that they are indeed abuse victims. And they, they don't want to, to actually put a title to it a lot of times because that's such a hard thing to look at and to, to accept. And so. A lot of times these people will justify what their their parents have done or downplay it or minimize it as a rationale to, to say, oh, well, you know, they're just having a bad day. It, it was a stressful time, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so to actually to for Jonathan to sit down and objectively look at his father. Man, that's tough. He, he, he isn't at this point. He's not being able to, to see who his dad really is. And he does not want to think about how far his father's willing to go just to maintain the throne. And I, I think this is our first glimmer uh, of why Jonathan can't be king, because a king has to be able to accurately ex uh, assess the situation 
and looked at the facts with a, a cold eye, you know, no, no jaundice, no bias, and say, this is what I'm dealing with. And Jonathan, he's just not doing it right now. Right. So, yeah, cause, I mean, and, you know, remember back in chapter 19, Jonathan was the one who convinced David to come back. And he was the one who convinced his father, it's okay, David needs to come back. And like I said, it, it's, he used all the language that codependent people use. You know, I, I, he didn't mean it. He's changed. Just come home, have Christmas dinner with the family. It's not going to be like last year. You know, all these things that those of us who've been in abusive situations, we've heard. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's that trying to maintain that relationship, you know, but it's peace at all cost. And it, that's not really peace. And so it, it's, it, it, may, it really puts a different light on Jonathan when you realize what, what he's doing and that maybe there, there's some, you know, fundamental flaw in him. And, and that's not saying he's a terrible person. I don't think the Bible's ever negative towards Jonathan. Um, but it also is very realistic in the people. So even our heroes are very realistic. So, um, verse three, David shows that he knows the truth. Uh, he, he points out how Saul's been manipulating Jonathan and Saul knows that, that Jonathan loves David and he's, he's lying to Jonathan about what his plans are. And David tries to impress on Jonathan that the danger that Saul really is you know, um, posing to his very life. And he actually says, there's not a step between me and death. So Saul, I mean, sorry, Jonathan in verse four, can't bring himself to, to contradict David. Uh, he, he understands that what David's saying really is true as much as he'd like to avoid it. He, he, he accepts it and he vows to do what David asks. So David devises this plan, and it's on the next moon, new moon, uh, Rosh Kadesh, and we're going to talk about what Rosh Kadesh is in a later episode because this is a really interesting aspect of the, of the story. But he, he says, you know, hey, I'm expected to participate, uh, and I'm supposed to be there. And he said, I just won't go. And so he gives Jonathan the story to tell Saul uh, whenever Saul recognizes that David's um, absent. And he says, you know, tell your dad I've gone to Bethlehem and that I'm going to go participate in a yearly sacrifice with my family. And so David tells uh, Jonathan that if Saul is is good, if he if he's fine with it, then he's good with David. You know, that David can come back. However, if if he's angry, then Jonathan needs to accept that Saul wants to hurt David. And so if you think. Think about David's situation. I mean, just, just stop and, and think about what's come before and all of his dealings with Saul. The thing that stands out about this plan is it's stupid. It, it, it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, Saul has thrown a spear at David three times. He's attempted to get David killed in battle with the Philistines. He's tried to use his daughters to trap David. He has sent assassins to David's home to the point he told them, bring, the, bring David to me in his bed so that I can kill him. Mm -hmm. he, he's chased David to Nioth. And you, David doesn't need any more proof of, of Saul's intentions and then what Saul's capable of. 
the person who needs the proof is Jonathan. He, he's the one that needs to see the truth. And he needs to see the truth about his father. And so David in verse 8 places himself at, at Jonathan's mercy. And he tells Jonathan if there's any guilt in him, in, in, in David, that Jonathan should kill him, not Saul. You know, better are the wounds of a friend. And so he, he really says, my life is in your hands and my life really is, it's only what, worth what you say it is. And do you find guilt in me? Do you see where I have sinned against you or your father? If you do, then I deserve to die and I will accept your judgment. And in this, David is really elevating Jonathan to that position of king, even though Jonathan, Jonathan hasn't inherited the throne yet. David is essentially saying, you are the right, the rightful king of Israel, more so than even your father. And so he's also kind of allowing himself to see where, where Jonathan stands in relationship between, you know, Saul and David. Mm. So verse nine, and I know we're kind of just going through the verses here, but, and we're going to talk more about the implications, but there's just a lot of story in this. So verse nine, Jonathan acknowledges that David's innocent. He hasn't done anything. And he promises that if he ever knows that his father desires to kill David, he's going to tell him. So, you know, good friend. And uh, uh, yeah. David, <laughs> yeah. That, that seems like a, a thing a good friend would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah at, the, at the minimum level of friendship, you know, <laughs> just tell me, tell me if someone's going to try to kill me. Yeah, at least so, let me know if my life's in danger. <laughs> I, I think it's reasonable. So uh, David asked Jonathan, says, hey, okay, so if we carry out our plan, who's going to tell me what Saul's response is? And in verse 11, now this is where things start to get interesting. Verse 11, Jonathan says, let's go to the field. So they've been having this conversation, and now Jonathan, we don't know exactly where it is, but he's, let's, let's go to the field. Let's, let's go talk about this someplace away from everyone else, someplace a little bit quieter and a little bit, you know, more secluded. Now, if you know your Torah, this is a moment of suspense because what happened the first time two brothers went to a field? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, you've got that connection back to Cain and Abel when, you know, when Cain says to Abel, and we assume let's go to the field is in the text, but apparently that's not there. And it says, and then they were in the right? field. And um, then... Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. You know, know, David just offered to let Jonathan kill him. And so, you know, as a reader, if you were reading this and you didn't know the whole story, it would be like, wait a minute, what what is going to happen? But there's another story, and it uses the same word for field and the same kind of setup. And that's in Genesis 32. And it's when Jacob meets Esau after being in Laban's house. And so that's the, the tension. Which, which field are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be a field of reconciliation or is this going to be a field of death? So we're going to talk some more about that in a minute. So, but we'll get through the rest of the story just so we got some good context. So verses 12 and 13, Jonathan vows with God as his witness that he will deliver the news to David himself. And he asked that the Lord do it to him whatever his father might do to David if he does not disclose uh, Saul's plans. So the interesting line in these verses is Jonathan's 
blessing to David. It says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Uh, has been there. That word is in the perfect tense. It's a completed action. It, it's done. It's in the past. It's God's mm -hmm. no longer with Saul. And so we're starting to get this little glimmer that maybe the light bulb is starting to come on for Jonathan. God has departed from his father, but God is with David. And, and Jonathan is acknowledging that. And most commentators say, you know, this is the point where Jonathan is really recognizing David is going to be the king. And so I think verse 14 that shows that despite the, the denials that, that Jonathan had offered on behalf of his father, it, he, he understands the truth. And he, he may not want to face it at a cognitive level, but there is, is this element of, of knowing and, and he says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So I, I think we really do see that statement of, yes, you're going to be the king. You're going to have the power to do whatever you want to do. And that's going to include killing my family. It's going to, it's going to include killing me. And the 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 thing is in this in this kind of culture and environment it was proper and it was good that david would kill all of jonathan's descendants and and all of saul's descendants because that's how you kept unity in your in your kingdom yeah yeah if, if, if the, there's uh, any of the other guy left over people might start a coup <laughs> that's it exactly and so the idea that you can defeat a former king and not kill off his descendants was radical. And the fact that Jonathan is asking for this, it, now we've gone beyond the minimum standard of friendship. Now we're, we're going to, you know, the, the very fabric of David's kingdom. And we're seeing, you know, will David be this person? And of course, this vow is going to come into play later with uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Yeah, got some interesting stuff on that. Yeah, and we also we also do <laughs> see the opposite of this later on with Solomon and um, the I can't remember who was one of David's brothers or sons uh, who mm -hmm. asked for he he asked for one of the women from the harem and and uh, Solomon was like no that's not going to happen <laughs> and and took care of him so yeah that's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and, and this is all part of the the politics. This this is the standard of the day and, and you know where we have elections and yeah sometimes elections get ugly and messy we we don't kill off the person who lost the election yeah cam um, campaigns used to be a little more messy <laughs> yeah can you, I, I just suddenly was thinking like what would that be like today it's like how many people would not run for president <laughs> if you lose you die uh so but probably not a wise uh strategy there for for our life and time but you know jonathan really is he he is putting his future his his legacy in david's hand and you know the thing is we rarely encounter someone who is so torn as as jonathan is i mean he he really is caught between david and his father you know his life and his identity as saul's son versus his love for david and you know his very existence, his children's existence, is endangered by the fact that David even is alive. 
Mm-hmm. And so Saul's response on many levels makes much more sense than Jonathan's. And so the fact that Jonathan can accept that this is God's decree, this is who's going to rule, it, that tells you something about his character. And, you know, and we need to remember these things about Jonathan because, you know, he was the warrior who went out and faced the Philistines with just his armor bearer. He's mm-hmm. the one who asked God for a sign, should I go forward? When his dad said, hey, whoever broke the vow needs to die, he's like, that's me. Okay. I mean, he accepted it because that was God's plan. And that's, he never really, he doesn't push against what he perceives as the ordained order. He's very good at following the rules. He's very good at, you know, making sure he does what's proper. But contrast that with David. I mean, this is David who, he writes the Psalms where he's basically, you know, railing at the heavens and screaming at God when things don't seem to go according to the plan he deems appropriate. This is David who pushes back against God anytime he thinks God needs to do something that he hasn't done or God has done something that David doesn't agree with. You know, David is not somebody who accepts the status quo. He wants the status quo to be to be changed and upset. And even if that means confronting God with what he thinks is wrong. And there there really is something about a leader in the Bible that they need that quality. I mean, we see it with Moses. We've seen it with Samuel. We're going to see it with the prophets that they push back and they, they say, God, we need to see your justice. We need to see you honor the ones you love. We, mm-hmm. we need to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so Jonathan's not going to pray a prayer like that. He, he doesn't have that in him. He, he's very much, he's a good guy. And the idea of, of wrestling with God in this way that David is so famous for, it, it, it's not part of who he is. But this also takes us back to that Jacob and Esau par- uh, parallel, because Jacob's the one who wrestled with God. Jacob's the one who had a vision for the future. He was pursuing it. He wanted to make it happen. Esau's the one who just wanted to ha- be fed. Dad wants, dad wants something to eat. I gave him something to eat. You know, he didn't have any vision and passion for the future. Right. But David and Jonathan, I mean, David and and Jacob do. And so that very much puts uh, Jonathan in the role of Esau in that parallel. So um, you you need this as your leader. And I real, but I do think that the, the two men saw something in each other that they lacked in themselves. Uh, you know, Jonathan could be at peace. Jonathan could could go with the flow. David can't. Uh, you know, you, you have to, you think about friends and how, how they work together. Uh, I've got a really good friend and she said, our big differences can be summed up in a very simple way. She always asks why. And I always ask why not. So, you know, it, it's that balance and that, that back and forth. And, the, you know, they probably could have, uh, they probably could have, been an amazing team if they could have learned from each other but that's not going to happen so anyway verse 18 uh jonathan agrees that that david's david's plan should go to should work and he actually assures that's going to work because he takes it one step further he's going to make sure that david's seat is empty now 
we're actually told the the seating arrangement and we'll in a later verse and any empty seat at the king's table is going to to draw notice because i mean everybody wants to be at the king's party right and so you know, somebody's not there will you put another guest in the place jonathan's like no nobody's going to sit there that way he i know that he knows that you're not there and jonathan's going to force saul to address the issue so then Jonathan goes on to address the, um, to outline his plan. And he says on the third day, we've got another sequence of threes here. On the third day, David's to return to the same field. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan will shoot three arrows. And if he tells the, the little boy who's going to fetch the arrows, hey, you know, they're, they're near to me, then that means come back. If, they're, if I tell him they're farther out, then that means you need to run, that David needs to run. And he he reminds David that no matter what message he delivers, they have made a covenant and David needs to honor it. And, you know, we already know what the message is going to be because, you know, obviously um, David is going to spend the next massive part of the book of Samuel on the, or first Samuel running from Saul. And anybody who's read their Bible knows that makes up a huge part of first Samuel. Right. But this connects us back to another story and we're we're in genesis 21 8 through 20 uh, yeah genesis 21 8 through 21 yeah abraham had taken hagar uh sarah's handmaiden to be a concubine and she'd had ishmael and sarah tells him you you gotta kick him out and god says do what sarah says listen to your wife and so they've been kicked out. They've got a skin of water. It's run out and Ishmael's dying. So Hagar retreats a bow shot away. Mm-hmm. Very specific word there. Because she can't bear to see her son die. And the angel of the Lord appears and, and he gives this great prophecy about who Hagar's son is going to grow up to be and how successful and how he is also going to be a father of, of great nations. And Then we're told that Ishmael grows up to be an expert with the bow. And so in this, we're we're reminded once again, David has to replace the house of Saul. Jonathan cannot be the, the covenant king, just like Ishmael could not be the covenant son. And so we see... The, these parallels being drawn back where God always brings in this replacement, you know, that you get the first one who there's something wrong with them. There's always something wrong with the obvious choice. But now I'm going to bring along a second one. That's the unobvious choice, the obscure, and I'm going to pluck them out of their obscurity and I'm going to raise them up because it's not about a person's merit in, you know, the culture or financially or any of this. It's about God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so the the writer of of Samuel really is reaffirming these themes. The second one's greater. The second one is chosen over the first one. And you know, this ongoing history since Israel's conception. And you know, and we see that fulfilled with Christ being the second Adam. So verse 24 and 25, uh, we're given the setup. David's hiding, Saul's new main feast begins, Saul's at the head of the table. Jonathan sits opposite by the wall. Very important little bit of information there. Mm-hmm. Abner is at Saul's mm-hmm. side. David's seat is empty. And 
just to give you a little bit of a clue where we're going with some of our, our, our Rosh Kodesh uh, study is, notice there's no women in this list. That's going to be important. So well, that's a little teaser for what's coming up. So at first, it seems like the plan's not going to succeed because Saul notices. He says nothing. As normal, we're, we're told that what Saul is thinking. And he, he rationalizes David's absence away. He says something has happened. He's, he's had an accident. Um, he's unclean. And now the rabbis say that he was unclean because he had had a sexual encounter, which, you know, given David's nature, not really all that surprising. Well, I mean, um, in the fact but... that, I mean, that's what, uh, that's what came to mind to me, actually. And especially if you, if you have Saul, who's been spending time with David and kind of knows that, you know, <laughs> he likes the ladies, right? Exactly. Exactly. It makes sense that that would be what they would, you know, what they would speculate it could be. So Saul's like, oh, yeah, okay, he's unclean. He can't be here today. So we will, um, you know, we'll see him come up tomorrow and he'll he'll join uh, the feast with us then. But when David's gone for the second day, then Saul's starting to get suspicious and he demands to know where the son of Jesse is. You know, he's not going to say David's name. He's that mad. Where is that son of Jesse? Um, well, that, that's a that's a common reaction, you know, when you're upset with someone. You know, parents <laughs> do this all the time. Look at what your child did. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And and Saul is that that language comes out even more as we go through the story because he remember David had said my household isn't isn't important enough for me to be worthy of marrying a king's daughter. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I don't come from a, a significant family. So David really has said, you know, his family is the reason why he has to, you know, be humble. So now Saul's using it kind of like, yeah, see the son of Jesse came and bothered to show up where he's supposed to be. Um, and and he's, he, he's mad. So Jonathan you know, retells the story uh, that he and David agreed upon. David's gone to this feast with the clan. Uh, he's gone back to Bethlehem to be with his inferior family. Uh, but then he adds that David's brother commanded that he be there. And despite all of Jonathan's kind of denials before, what we've got now, we see that Jonathan... He's seeking the truth at this point, and he has devised a story that is going to push all of Saul's buttons. And he, he is, number one, revealing that David made the request to him. Mm -hmm. David shouldn't have talked to Jonathan if he didn't want to be there. He should have talked to Saul. Saul picked up on that immediately. You don't ask somebody else to get you excused from the king's celebration. You get The king has to excuse you. So... Right. David has elevated Jonathan to the position of king. Then number two, he, he's saying that David's brothers have more of a right and authority over David than even the king of Israel. Talk about a slap in the face. This inferior family can can boss around one of Saul's subjects. Uh-uh, that, that, that doesn't fly. Right. But, but the third thing is... In the book of Samuel, if you'll notice what happens at sacrificial feast, this is where new kings are anointed. And so the fact that David is going to a sacrificial feast possibly could be tipping Saul off. Hey, things are getting ready to move. We're actually going to see David 
step into this role. Now, we, we know that he's not actually there, so it doesn't happen, and we know that it's happened before. Saul does not know this. So you can see why this would, you know, all of Saul's suspicion and paranoia would just come to the surface, and he goes off. He, he Verse 30, he calls Jonathan names. He says that Jonathan's the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You know, your son, not, not my kid, you know, just like you were talking about. He, he accuses David of choosing, uh, Jonathan of choosing David over his own father. And he calls it a shame to Jonathan and calls it a shame to his mother's nakedness. So you have that distancing language. Uh, you're not my son. You're your mother's son. I don't want anything to do with you. And the, the language is really revealing the family dynamic. And, you know, Saul's pathology is being exposed. And you know, we don't know who his wife was. We're, we're never given any details about her, but we have good reasons to believe that like Saul, she would have been the daughter of one of the women who was taken in the last few chapters of Judges, either from Shiloh or before that, mm-hmm. or she would have been the granddaughter of one of those women. And when you have a woman who's raised by a, a mother who had been abused, that's not a good culture for meek and docile women (laughs) just historically and because if you look at the daughters of women who have been abused you you get one of two things typically you know and there's exceptions guys i'm not i'm not trying to say that it's always this way but typically you get one of two two things you get a daughter who vows i will never be the victim and they are, you know, just these determined um, forces of nature that you just should stay out of their way. Or they accept that being a victim is inevitable. Mm-hmm. And so given Saul's need for control in every aspect of his life, you could reasonably guess that possibly his wife was, was not somebody meek and submissive and accepted victimization as the norm. Uh, and this might be why we never see her in the palace, why we never find her at any of the feast. And, you know, but even if she wasn't, the fact that Saul did need such control, even a meek and docile woman would be perceived as perverse and rebellious. Now, the, the phrase, the shame of your mother's nakedness is pretty much, it would have been better if you hadn't been born. Mm-hmm. Your, your mother should have never allowed you know, herself to be exposed so that you could be conceived. Um, there's a lot of ways to say that in English that are more concise, but probably not appropriate for air. Fair enough. Uh, but <laughs> Saul's basically, essentially, he's disowning Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is the one who, who is unworthy to be counted among the royal household of Israel. But verse 31, notice the flip. He goes from calling him names and saying all these horrible things about Jonathan and his mother to for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Okay, classic abuser doublespeak. You're mm-hmm. not worthy, you're useless, you're ugly, you're undeserving, but I do this because I want the best for you. I'm saying this because you need to wake up and understand what's good for you. And I'm the only one who does it, and I'm the only one who loves you enough to say these horrible things to you so that you will wake up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is that that awful kind of uh, limbo that abuse victims live in. So you can see why Jonathan is so torn. And so Saul ends with, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. 
So because you, I love you so much and you are such a coward and you won't do what needs to be done, I'll do the horrible thing on your behalf. Look at me be self-sacrificing. And Jonathan, bless him, he does the one thing an abuser cannot stand. He refuses to be distracted. He doesn't argue any of the points that Saul's throwing out to getting confused. He just holds on to the truth and he asks Saul the question, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Give me, you know, give me verifiable facts. Do not try to, you know, make this an emotional storm where everybody gets lost in the winds of your words that we actually look at what can be proven. What has he done? This isn't, this isn't what he deserves. And, and Saul doesn't have an answer because there's not one. Saul, all he can, if he even acknowledges what Jonathan has just said, he's acknowledged that Samuel has revealed that the kingdom's going to be taken from him. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Jonathan refuses to join into this delusion that Saul has, has made part of his reality, that somehow he can still hold on to the throne, he can still allow Jonathan to inherit, he, he, he reacts. He, he has to do something. So verse 33, but Saul hurled a spear and, at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Right there. I mean, this, this is the, the watershed moment for Jonathan. He can no longer deny that his dad wants to put David to death. And when, when Jonathan and David kind of blur together in Saul's addled brain there, and Jonathan is treated as David has been treated, Jonathan wakes up. He, he gets it. And so, you know, Saul, I mean, I had never really considered him as a, um, as a way to look at abusive relationships until uh, going through it this time. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't think I've studied the story really in depth since I'd gone through my own abusive relationship and I've studied the dynamics. And I mean, anybody who's seen it, you, it's like right there on the page. And, and so the problem is whenever you have a, an abuse victim who says, I'm not going to, to join in the delusion, now you have to be destroyed. And so just like David had to be destroyed, Jonathan had to be destroyed. So verse 34, and Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food in the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Now. Saul's violent outburst convinces Jonathan and, you know, he, he's angry, he's grieving. And, and this is a good time, too, to point out for abuse victims, a lot of times when they realize that they have been victims, their, their reactions are anger and grief. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Their whole world has just been, been disassembled and exploded in their face and everything they thought they knew was true no longer is true. And, and there's a level of grief that a lot of people who haven't been there don't understand. Because they think, oh, well, you're free now. You've gotten out. You've escaped. You survived. You should be happy. Let's celebrate this. That's not how it works. Uh, there will be a point where you can be happy and celebrate you got out. But at the beginning, it, it, it is. It's just anger and grief. And you've got to work through that. But the, the, the writer does something really, really clever with this verse. Because the pronouns, particularly in that last um, phrase there, that he said that, 
because his father had disgraced him. Who is him? Is it David or is it Jonathan? We don't know. In the Hebrew, it's not clear. But at the same time, remember, David and Jonathan just got mixed up in, in Saul's mind. Mm-hmm. And so the the writers reflecting that, and, and it, it's it's actually a it's one of those little details that shows you how brilliant this writer of Samuel really is, because David and Jonathan they flow together and they merge and then they 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 separate, and, and there is supposed to be that tension in the first part of this book: who is the rightful king of Israel? Because we we need to know that we need to know is Jonathan going to to regain the throne or retain the throne or is it going to be this this guy from you know the outside now the problem is we all know that king david reigns in israel so uh we don't get to we don't get to indulge in that tension and so i i think sometimes it's good to to stop and think about what it would be like to read this without knowing the ending and so the uh like most of like most of you victims, it, it is that final moment uh, of violence that that catches um, Jonathan off guard, uh, off guard, and makes him face the truth. So he he goes out into the field in, in verses thirty five through forty, and he he carries out his plan that he and David had had. But in the end, he he can't allow David to leave without speaking to him. So instead of you know calling out to the boy and saying, you know, the arrows are here or there, they're, they're further out. And he does do that, but he doesn't leave it at that. He, he sends the boy away and he has David come out and, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, on, on one level, it doesn't make sense because you think, okay, they put this plan in place so that David could get away quickly. And so that there wouldn't be any chance that somebody would oversee them talking and endanger Jonathan or what have you. But on the other hand, it makes sense from an emotional perspective, because like I said, Jonathan's world has been completely devastated. Here is his friend that he loves and adores and has been with him through, you know, crazy adventures, fighting the Philistines, uh, lived in his house, married a sister. And now he's got to say goodbye, not just to David, he has to say goodbye to the reality of what he had known, how he had defined himself and defined himself through his experience with his dad. So David comes out of hiding and he, and he falls on his face before uh, Jonathan and he bows three times. They kiss each other. They weep. And this is where you know, we talked in a previous episode. Oh, well, you know, this is why this is a homosexual relationship. Before we go there, and I'm not going to rehash everything we said in that episode, I want to take you to Genesis 33. So Jacob has left Laban's house. And when he's leaving Laban's house, you know, he's terrified of what's going to, what's going to happen with his brothers. And he goes through this whole um, crazy uh, configuration of events to, to make sure that the meeting is as smooth as possible. But whenever they finally do meet face to face, Jacob falls on his face to the ground seven times, not three times, but seven times. They embrace each other. They weep. They kiss each other. So just as Jacob had displaced his older brother, and this is their reunion, now David is displacing Jonathan, and and this is their reunion. 
th this final chance to be together. So, you know, if we're going to read uh, any kind of sexual relationship between David and Jonathan into this passage, we're going to have to do it to Jacob and Esau. So I, you, we're going to be consistent. Um, and I think most of us understand that's kind of ridiculous to read it back into Jacob and Esau. So, you know, but the point is, there's no animosity in both of these stories, whether we're looking at Jacob and Esau or, or David and Jonathan, there's no animosity that the one who's been displaced accepts it. They, they go on. Jonathan goes back and he does his thing. Esau finds a new place to live. He's given the land of Edom. And so there, there's this really beautiful moment where you're being shown that these two men, the Bible is portraying them as these brothers. And that's how we should be reading the text because that's what the text tells us. So verse 42, Jonathan reminds David of his promise one more time. And unlike Saul, Jonathan makes provision for, for his children. And it reminds David, I need you to take care of my kids. I may not be able to do that. I accept that I might be the one who dies. I might, I might not be able to survive this, but I need you to take care of my kids. And he needs David to do it because David's going to be the only one with, with the authority and the power to do it. So the, this is, that's the story. And we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some other details in the story when we get, um, when we get further along, uh, sorry, our next episode, but I, I before we close this out, I, I kind of have this question that, that bugs me. And it's the same question that I had for David and Mikhail. Why didn't David take him with him? Why, why didn't Jonathan go with David? How different would the story have been? if they could have walked away from that old household, that old identity, and actually stepped into this new covenantal kingdom with the new leader. Because despite everything else they did right, they don't make that step. And so it, it just, I don't know, it bugs me. It bugs me. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, especially if Jonathan is convinced that David's gonna be the new king. Yeah, and he seems to be. And, you know, the rest of the the book is really going to be about David's flight from Saul. Uh, there would have been many times where David, where Jonathan really could have stepped in and uh, shifted the course of events. And mm -hmm. instead, he's going to die at Saul's side. And, you know, that's, that, that's a, a scary kind of testimony for, for what happens when we don't... Uh, don't always you know, when we refuse to cut those ties yeah and jonathan and mccall neither one they, they never fully cut the ties they're, they're holding on to, to that that security because well okay so that's speculation but i i do i think there's a this element of especially with mccall I, I see it more i am i'm royalty I have a certain level of security. I have a certain level of privilege and honor that comes with the fact that I am the king's child. Mm -hmm. So to, to step out of that would have been terrifying. And, you know, I, I've been watching a lot of crime shows lately, uh, just something to, to kind of get my head on you know, a different track. 
and you know how many plots revolve around the uh the the rich kid who can't step out of their daddy's shadow because they don't want to lose the trust fund uh you know this is still something we see and it doesn't always have to be about money It, it can just be the fact this is the family you've known and this is the family you feel comfortable with. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> and it's very, right. very real. So, but that's that's what I have for, for this episode. You got anything you want to add to? No, I think you pretty much covered it because a lot of the stuff that I, I started having questions about as far as just different connections, things like that. Of course, you know, you, you covered a lot of those with the, uh, with, uh, Ray, uh, was it, uh, not Rahab, Hagar the connection to Hagar mm-hmm. and Ishmael. Um, because I, I was curious about that because we were in a field, there was a, the archery, the arrow distance, things like that. But, and then of course, um, uh, uh, Cain and Abel, why, what am I, I'm, I'm having a struggle with names today. So sorry about that. But <laughs> yeah, I was curious about that too, because just, it does seem like there's a lot more connections and they do seem to, to ramp up. So, um, you know, I'll be looking into the, the, some of that a little more. I'm just curious to see what else we have on that. <laughs> the the writer Samuel's really, really good at going back and, and pulling those little nuggets from Genesis and from Exodus. And, you know, like I said, the whole book is, is got the general outline of Exodus to this idea of moving from, you know, a, a corrupt king to a chosen king. And, you know, we don't, we got... Pharaoh was the corrupt king, and Moses isn't a king, but he is definitely the leader. Matter of fact, God says, I'll make you as a god. Um, so, you know, there, there's this idea of this divine rulership. And so the, the writer pulls on that for the overall um, outline and form of the book. But then going back in and, and pulling these little threads out and showing you where it fits into Genesis, uh, you know, it really reinforces that idea that humanity hasn't changed god hasn't changed in how he deals with humanity Mm -hmm. it's the way things are are the way things have been but you know there's this progressive revelation and this progressive invitation to join with god and now we don't have to be you know anointed king over a nation to be god's representative on this earth now we as individual believers have a chance to step into that role and, and to be that that royal king royal priesthood even where we combine those two roles not just one or the other where right. samuel real, really is we've got to keep them separate we got to sure. keep the priesthood separate the kingship separate and the prophets are separate because anytime anybody starts to take on all three of those roles or even two of the three roles now we got a problem. This is whenever people start, you know, getting too big for their britches. Or, I don't know if I should say that. Um, <laughs> sorry, grandma. Quote. Anyway, um, but they, they, their heads start getting too big and they, they start trying to, to do too much and it, their arrogance and hubris takes over. Right. So we, we see that a lot. And that's, that's one of the, the big messages of the book. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good message. So, well, I think that's a good place to wrap for this week, and we can um, pick it up next week, um, which is, hey, that's going to be one episode 100. Uh, then you're actually going to drive in for yeah. that one if all goes well. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to believe it's already been 100. I, yeah, coming up on two years in October, <laughs> so we're we're cranking these things out. And, and, and technically, I think it's actually going to be more than 100, but it's going to be 
the 100th regular episode because I always put like a 0.5 on like interviews right. and specials and things like that. So mm-hmm. we have already technically done more than 100, but next week is the official 100. So hopefully you can come in for that and we can uh, continue to see what what else we're going to do for that. I We still haven't decided if we're doing anything special for it, if we're just going to, you know, just carry on. <laughs> You, you, carrying on is nice in my books because then I don't have to think about what I'm going to say. I just go through with my Bible. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so. sure. Well, that makes sense. Well, well, everyone out uh, there, for th- thanks for joining us, and uh, we hope you come back next week, and we'll see what happens. Um, if you want to be a part of the conversation or possibly impact what happens on the 100th episode, mm-hmm. uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is our website, and you can be part of it. Um, and I guess until next week. Have fun. We'll see you later. (laughs) Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.